This episode of The Moment is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code MOMENT. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Before we get to Lewis Black, I, I just want to take a minute. I, I realize that um, since I've been doing this show um, and it's been coming to you through Slate, if you're listening on the Slate daily feed and you're not somebody who's been listening for a while, I, I haven't really properly introduced myself. One day I just showed up in your feed and you were like, what, what is this? It's not really an interview. It's not really a conversation. And so I just wanted to give you a little bit of context. And if you are somebody who's been listening for a while, um, you know, you can fast forward. You know, you have that little button. What is it, a 30-second fast forward? Go ahead. Uh, and the context I want to give is that I started having these conversations with people um, with a microphone here because I've been having them without a microphone for a long time. Uh, I was somebody who was a blocked screenwriter, a blocked writer, really, a blocked artist until I was 30. And when I was 30, my best friend and I went into a basement and uh, worked for half a year and wrote the screenplay Rounders. Uh, it was the first script we wrote together. Uh, it's a long process, a long story, and how it ended up getting made and becoming a movie after facing tons of rejection. I've told the story in many places. But when it happened and I was able to live my life as a creative person and have gone on since then to make many movies and television shows as a writer, producer, or director, um, I promised myself that one of the things I was going to do was reach out to artists who move me, creative people who intrigued me. And I was going to ask them how and why they do the thing that they do. And um, I've always tried to translate that to my other friends. And, and part of the reason is that when I was struggling to do this stuff, I wanted to understand it. I wished that uh, I'd always wish for a roadmap of some sort. And I talked to business people and I talked to people um, who are not artists too, but who find a way to access the most creative part of themselves. That's my mission. My mission is to talk to people who accomplish remarkable things and find out how they process the high and low moments, the what I like to call inflection points, which is not mathematically accurate. But what I, I mean by that is moments of transition, moments when anything could go one way or, the, or another. And uh, because I think that when, when, when people, when we find ourselves in these moments, sometimes we panic, sometimes we freeze. But people who do great things, they find a way to thrive. And I've always been, interest, been interested in how that happens. And so that's the exploration that I'm on here. And sometimes that means sitting back and listening, and sometimes that means probing, and sometimes that means sharing um, in the hope that that gets a deeper level of, of sharing with the person with whom I'm talking. Uh, so that's what I'm doing. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate engaging in this broader conversation um, with those of you who are new to the show. And for those of you who have been here for a long time and have been writing these great reviews on iTunes and have been rating the show and writing me emails, I really appreciate it. And um, you're the reason that I continue to do this. So thanks. My guest today is the great Lewis Black. Uh, I will stop talking now. You know who Lewis Black is. He's a superstar of comedy uh, and a great entertaining conversationalist. And uh, we get into some of this stuff here now. You were just talking about podcasters who talk about themselves too much, so I'm just going to sit here silently and let you go. <laughs> I have no questions even. I'm not even going to ask. 
<laughs> Mr. Black, what would you like to talk about? <laughs> that would be really perfect. That's, I, I wish that where you really find it hard is when you're on uh, – um, when the, when you do, uh, you know, like morning radio, when I have to do uh, press for the tours and stuff. Oh, that's a delight then. Some of them are really, there's still some amazing people out there who really get it, you know, and then, but some of them are like, you know, so, well, what, you know, what do you want to talk about that's funny? What do you want what to, what, what are some questions we got? Just talk to me. Yeah, just be a human being and have a conversation. Yeah, let's just talk. Yeah, uh, do you know uh, the comedian Big J Okerson? No. He's great. You, you'd like him. But he was on here talking about that. It almost broke him. One of those Midwestern radio shows almost broke him. Yeah, no, they, they can do it. But there's some really great – there's these two guys, Todd and Tyler, who work – who nobody knows, really. I mean, they, you know, he's well-known out in he, he's Omaha, Wichita. There's like a six cities. And uh, it literally – I've known them – been on with them so long. It's literally – I will do – I will call them when something – either they will get in touch with me when they see something I'm doing or I will call them and say – they're like the first people I talk to about stuff. When I'm, when something happens, because it's like I'm just talking to somebody. They really they listen. They listen, and and we've had, and they just get it. It's like I don't have any sense of being on the radio. It's literally as if I was, you know, on the phone with somebody talking. Yeah, that's perfect, and also that's uh, smart from a broadcasting standpoint because they're they're bringing out sort of like what you really are. Yeah, no, that's the. It's really nice. That's when it's nice instead it, of like just talking at you. Yeah, and and the, these guys, Bob and Tom, who have been out out in. Uh, Indianapolis and really have a massive radio thing and have done a, a great deal for comedy in terms of putting people on the air and doing tours and stuff. And uh, and their show, too, is, is really great. Yeah, they're the guys who broke Big J. Broke that, him. Yeah. Broke him in half. Is that right? Did they Yeah, really? they destroyed him, right, Jay? Yeah. Wow. I was just talking to my producer. Wow. Uh, I'll, I'll send, yeah, I'll, I'll send you the thing because he... Uh, he went in there and, and his whole act is he, he... Everyone says they do this. He just gets on stage and uh, talks. And um, he was trying to connect with them, and he felt like they were just doing the bullet point thing. And it was one, it was just one day too many yeah. of being on the road. Yeah, no, I know that. Yeah, <laughs> and you've lived it. Well, yeah, it's plus. It's you know, the thing is, is that I, I'm in that position now where I don't have to do it until nine thirty, and <laughs> he had to do it at seven. That's a whole and different I used, thing. And it is. And you, and I used to wander into those things. I mean, I, the, the, one of the craziest was. I mean, I wandered in. You know, I'd be. I'd be up till three drinking. I'd be doing clubs. I'd be up till three o'clock in the morning drinking, and then, and it's like, oh, I gotta go do radio at seven, and I'd be drunk. Would you stay up? No, I would. No, I'd take, I take, do my four hours of sleep, and then get up and and be drunk. Can you can you generally do four, what can you what can you do on an extended base? Like a, a five hours a night? Do you need six? Oh, I need six. You know, and if I need and with with six, I need a nap in the afternoon. <laughs> I gotta have a nap. So you, what do you try to get? Because this is the big, uh, I, I, this is the sort of the big question. I'm almost fifty, so now it's all I'm asking anybody. How much do you sleep? So if you can get six, it's good. You know, I think. But what irritates me is when you be about. Well, I was only sleeping. You know, there's people who sleep two hours a night. Fuck you! You sleep two hours a night. You fuck. Yeah, that's yeah, why you, you drove into the meridian. Yeah, <laughs> you Adderall ridden. Are you shitting me? Two hours of sleep. Who's kidding who? You know, and then I'm, yeah, and then I'm able to write six novels a year because I, you know, who needs sleep? I don't know because I'm. If I don't get it, I'm like, th- there's a word that we have. It's called tired. And, I, I thought you were going to say cunty. <laughs> <laughs> you know that also. 
that true? Happens when you <laughs> yeah. on two hours. Yeah, two hours, and I'm not. Everybody becomes B. Arthur on her worst. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so hey, you you've recognized that I, I already introduced you, but na- before you walked in, but uh, obviously Lewis Black is here because no one else sounds like this. So thanks for coming. My pleasure. We uh, have a good mutual friend, Willie Reale, who's sitting here uh, smiling, who put us together. Willie, thanks. Yes, Willie. Uh, we don't need you anymore. <laughs> but thanks. Yeah, we this can is, move on now. Served you, um, man. If I if I accomplish nothing else during this, I just want to get people to go find a version of your story about Vince Gill and <laughs> his wife, Amy, Amy Grant. Grant. Yeah. Uh, I saw you do that live at the Beacon one night. Oh, the Beacon, at, was, that, was the, that was a good, that was at, a good rendition. Yeah. Well, I got to say, you know, having seen comedy for so many years and I did it for a year and a half and lived, it's very hard to laugh, really laugh out loud. I mean, you had the place... You had me falling out of my seat, uh, <laughs> laughing. Thanks. And I've, tried, I've gone back and, and found the version that exists. Is there any version on tape anywhere that you think is like the best one, a video of you having done it that would – because I want to talk a little bit about how you built that well, I'd have to. I'd have to track it. I mean, I, I, I did, there is a video of it, and, it's, and, uh, and that video is also a, a CD. So. All right. I've heard it, the it, CD. Yeah. It's out there. And, uh, and that's really the, the – the, 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 I don't, I've not listened to that version because, you know, it's so funny because – uh, that was there's certain bits I have done in my life that are really hard to let go of, and that one was really brutal. I I hated letting go of it, and so as a result, it probably got better over time. And uh, but it was there was there were about seven bits that I just went God, I hate to let that one go. And and that was that one was one of the the nice ones from the standpoint of. Well, there, there are other comics like you. Well, Jim Gaffigan and I, I, I really, we've known each other. We kind of spun in the same. We were kind of uh, working the the clubs at the same time, and uh, and I've watched him grow, and he's watched me grow, and and uh, then the fact that he came up afterwards when when another comic goes, you know, boy, that you nailed, you nailed this there. Oh, that night he, that, yeah, yeah, he was there that night. Yeah. Uh, oh, and he, so he came up to you and he said, "Yeah, yeah, I know." Because and I, and that's to me the real. That made me feel just terrific. I I, I just loved the bit because it was really, uh, uh, it really happened and it was really. <laughs> I mean, it was. I walked on stage, and I had to follow Vince Gill. It's in St. Louis in front of, uh, uh, really twenty eight hundred. Uh, you know, it's twenty eight hundred people or some. There was some insane amount of people. It's for the Tony Larusa's uh, benefit. Oh, for the for animals. You know, Havy does that benefit every year. Alan Havy does just yeah. to bring it right oh, back. Yeah, he does it in uh, does it out on the West Coast. Uh, yes, he goes up to San Francisco because he's from St. Louis and he loves Larusa. He'll of do course, anything for yeah, that guy. That's is Havy from St. Louis? I didn't know that. That's born funny. in St. Louis. Yeah, and, and so is Kathleen Madigan. Is the which is the way I got suckered into it. But also, Larusa is a comedy freak. Yeah, so he'll. You know, he called me up to, you know, got my number from Kathleen. I mean, what are you going to say no to Tony LaRusso? No, you don't no, say no to him. No, no one says no to him. You read that George Will book about baseball, you know, no one ever said no to LaRusso. He figured everything out. Yeah, yeah. But, but what's amazing is you, I'm standing there before the concert. They, they're showing uh, the the ones where they where they, they won the, the series that year, whatever they won, the Pujols did, and yada, yada, and I forget. I don't, every, all, all World Series, all Super Bowls, everything is now the same to me. They've all mixed together into one pod. But we're watching it, and he is just as excited as if it's happening in real time. 
I'm thinking this guy. That's how this guy. I mean, that's how he is. That's how he's great at what he does. It's he's he literally is transfixed, and 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 he goes. So watch this. He says, "This is my favorite part." And the guy's he's getting ready to pitch the last pitch, and uh, and, and the guy pitches the last pitch. It's a great pitch. The guy swings and misses, and then they 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 cut to the dugout of the losing team immediately, and you just look at there's one guy who's sitting on the bench who I don't remember, of course. I'm, I'm lucky I, I remember I remember to show up here, and his eyes are dead. You just watch his eyes go dead, and he goes. And Delarusso says something like, "That's why we play the game." <laughs> That's fucking great. <laughs> Just to crush him. That's like a Hannibal Lecter level. And like the last Lecter book when he drinks the, he likes to, to make somebody cry. And then he just wants to drink the, uh, the tear, mix the teardrop. Yeah. Into a, uh, it's miserable. Yeah, it was really, but it was really amazing because he really, you got that sense that he really, you know, that it, and it, I mean, it was right. It was the same. I mean, I felt like I was at the game and I was sharing Wait, I the mean, moment. You, you can understand that because we just talked about that night that you were uh, at the Beacon. I mean, you've done thousands of gigs. Yeah. And you still remember the moment Gaffigan came yeah. up to you and essentially said, you kicked my ass tonight. Yeah. And you still, you saw the look on Gaffigan's face <laughs> when his eyes went dead. <laughs> well, we, I didn't never kick his ass, but what I did do is do a bit that he wished he'd done, you know, and that's the great thing. And But he's done shit that I wish I'd done. And also, and I, John He's Oliver great. too. I mean, every everyone I know that I really like, there's something that they didn't. I go, son of a bitch! How did I miss that? Oliver's knocking it out of the park, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's a prick. <laughs> yeah, fuck <laughs> that guy. That limey shit. That's a fake accent. But when when you when you uh, when you had that experience happen to you, so uh, the thing I really want to get into on, on the show, and I will after just uh, a second, is you know the the premise of this show is that before when when you walked in, you asked why I like podcasts and. I gave you some half bullshit answer. The truth is I like asking these questions uh, about this one particular thing, which is that, that to me, people who accomplish remarkable things process what I call the inflection points, like the high and low moments differently than most people do. Right. And so I, I've always tried to like learn what those were in my regular life. And then I decided if I did this, I'd have an excuse to really ask. So you've, you know, you, your life story famously has these, these, these moments. And right. so I definitely want to ask you about that stuff. But because this bit, this one bit has killed me. I've listened to it so many times. Uh, I just want to understand how you build something like that. When that thing happened to you with Vince and Amy Grant, and I won't spoil the whole, you got to go listen to the thing, but did you know right then, I'm going to use this? When was, like, how, and did it all just come to you the first time you started doing it, or did you create it over a year of... It took, it took probably initially it, it, the initial uh, the, the, the initially no sense of a bit happening. Initially, I am as fucked as I've ever been right. as a comic. Uh, you know, the the equivalent is like being in the middle seat on a plane and shitting your pants. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm doomed, and there's nothing, and this is it. And you they, know, walking onto stage following them, you're dead. Well, I mean, they're yeah. going to feast on my bones. She, you know, Amy Grant finishes with this Christian song. <laughs> You know, and they, you know, it's like really, and now let's have the Jew come out. It's like beyond belief. And uh, and I turned to Kathleen, and I said, you know, I said to her, I'm going to kill you for getting and me into I'm, it. I'm going to kill you for, for getting me involved. And and her her, her, her folks and her uh, her folks, her brother and her sister were out there. Her brother, her, her sister, and her mother texted while Amy Grant singing, singing Lewis is fucked. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and I had to walk away. I literally had to walk away while she was singing to just get trying to think, what am I going to do? What in the name of God? So you're not thinking at that time you're using it. When did it occur to you, I can use this? When I, when I won. I mean, when I won initially, when I got out there and just was straight. Because all you can do is be be straight with the audience. Just You just go, uh, you know, you, you know from the beginning, you know, you basically you just say them. You know, look at who you just saw. <laughs> and now due, due to some sort of insane uh, idea of, of structure of the evening, they went, let's now let's bring out the bitter, angry Jew. You know, and they got it, and so we could move on from there. Oh, so I, you said it that night. I pretty much said something similar to that. Oh, that's that. awesome. You know, but probably said it with my lips going, blah, 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 blah. But I really, uh, you, you just kind of, um, I mean, that's the thing about learning comedy. You just, you, 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 you take so many punches in the course of a career, you know, that you, um, you realize how to respond you, it becomes in, instinctive, you you know, uh, and so, uh, so I kind of knew, you know. And the one thing is to be on it, you know. Like I've, I once the, the the most extraordinary set I've ever seen in terms of audience destruction was Kevin Meany uh, was at the Catch a Rising Star and was in front of the Suits uh, from uh, ABC or whoever was doing Uncle Buck and. Yeah. Uh, the series that you know that you, you all remember Uncle Buck and uh, the John but, Hughes John Candy yeah, movie that yeah, they remade with Meanie yeah and the, they remade and, and this was his you know this was the thing you know you, you, you know they would, they came in to, you know all of the you know the, they came in to see him and uh, and he and he uh, he did his stuff which was really great and then he did his uh, he did a piece We Are the World where he basically. Um, Played it and lip synced it, um, and but did all of the characters in it, and he and it's extraordinarily funny, and his it's just it's brilliant. But he and I'd seen him do it five or six times, and, or maybe more because we were always kind of on the same right. bill, and he leveled the room. I mean, he leveled it. The place was like berserk, and I just thought, what a, you know, to watch somebody. You learn from that. You go, wow, that's you just take. Like he it. just showed up in that moment and yeah, was able to. You do know, it. I want this, and you're going to give it to me, and fuck you and your suit. <laughs> Where were you at that moment in your career? I was in. Uh, I was. Uh, my head was uh, just above sewage just, water. Right. <laughs> you know. No, I was at catch, so I felt. I mean, where I was in terms of where I was, it was it was really good. In, but uh, and, but they, it was also at a time when people were, you know, every third person was getting apparently a deal. Right, and and you didn't have one yet. I didn't have time. a deal, and I didn't have an agent who would really. At that point, um, I just started to have somebody who was sending me out. I couldn't find an agent who would just book me as a comic, and I was pretty good at that point. Yeah, and you were already in your forties at that. Point. Yeah, at that point, I just reached. Yeah, about I was. It, it, I was tipping into forty, forty-one, forty-two. And and no, you didn't have an agent who would get you on the road. No, manager who believed in you. No. I had a manager, but he was like he was a friend who uh, 
really should have been, you know, was doing other stuff and had some ideas. And he and he set up little things, but it wasn't, you know, not a manager, not a manager in the sense of he. It wasn't Colonel. This wasn't Colonel Parker. No, no, this. But he did get me in. But he did. He was. He worked in the the concert business. He worked for like the Needlelanders, and he worked for a number of other people. And and he did like set up. I opened for like Ray Charles, and I opened in a big outdoor. Venue. I opened for Jay Leno in a big outdoor venue, and I was doing it kind of bef- really before I had the chops to be doing it. Um, but this thing that happened when when Kevin leveled the room, um, I walked up on stage. I did I'm the next slot. So there's nothing you can do, right? You know, now ladies and gentlemen, you know, he finishes, he walks up. Uh, the guy does. You know, there's still the room's buzzing. The guy's basically doing a little patter in between whoever it was. I can't remember. And then, okay, here's Louis. You know. You know, you've you've seen him on Potatoes Are Free uh, and Lewis Black. And, and I come wandering on the stage and I looked at the audience and I just said, um, there is nothing that I can do that uh, can top what you just saw. And uh, what you just saw was masterful. And I think that we should, uh, I'm going to give you the time to continue to talk about what you saw up here. And I'm going to wait until really, uh, I think it's time to have a little more comedy. And I sat down. Oh, that's great, really? <laughs> I did. I sat that's down awesome. and waited. And then about three minutes later, I got up and started talking. Well, when you got up and started talking, they must have held. Yeah, you had was, them then. Yeah, you then owned it, them then. Yeah, then it was good. Because then they kind of got, okay, well, that's enough of Kevin. <laughs> they, you know, we, but it was really one of the, those are the kind of things that you, you, you learn these little, you just learn it. You just kind of instinctively. Later at dinner with Willie, I will tell you uh, that I was at Kevin Meany's worst gig. And I'll tell you the story at dinner. Wow. I won't do it now, but at dinner tonight, wow. I will tell you guys, oh, 100% guaranteed the worst, night of Ke- the worst day of Kevin Meany's professional life. I was right there. Wow. And partially responsible for it. But we'll yeah. talk about that later. Yeah, wow. yeah. We'll talk about that later. Havy plays a bit part in this story oh, as well. Nice. So yeah, we'll talk about that later. So for, for people who don't know, you took a pretty circuitous route to uh, worldwide uh, acclaim and success. And uh, so you were a playwright, right, uh, first? Yeah, I wrote plays. And uh, and I had a firm belief I would make a living at it, much like a mullet thinks it'll get downstream. <laughs> oh, and you'd had, you'd, <laughs> you'd had certain um, affirmation along the way that you weren't crazy, right? You went to Yale drama, you people told you they liked your plays, people you respected, but you did, it seems to me in reading your bio and in listening to you talk on what you say, this is your, we should give, this is your 500th podcast, podcast. <laughs> but that it took you, uh, you know, you didn't have financial success and you didn't have the, the normal sort of outward signs that you weren't a lunatic. And uh, so many people who listen to this show are people who are in somewhere on that continuum, somewhere in their process of trying to live like an artist's life, and everyone around them is telling them they're crazy. So what happened to you, and if people want to hear all the details of the, of the biography, the truth is on, on Marin's podcast and on, the Nerd, on Nerdist, there are a bunch where you can hear Lewis talk you through sort of like what the, the, the narrative bi- bi- biographical yeah, yeah, right. bits are. But I'm, I'm interested in what it, what it felt like at these certain moments for you. Like what it felt like to go back to your little place and like you say in a kind of a flip manner I've heard you say uh, oh the only the drag about it was just having to borrow money occasionally <laughs> right which is a, a good line yeah but and I also had a live I mean I did have a I did no exaggeration have a, a, I, I had a I established a living will with my parents 
I said, you can pony up the cash now. It's going to be worthless to me when I'm making money. I need right. it now. Good. And not a lot. I didn't, you know, I just did it to get by, whatever it was to get by so I could get to the next week. But, you know, you're someone who's told the story about uh, in a few different places in your book and then um, in one of your books you've written three, right, that are yeah. three bestsellers. But in one of them you talk about, you say that what I felt was just a kind of a joke about wanting to learn 50,000 words of, of Hebrew because it was something you could be good at yeah. crushing those other guys. Yeah. <laughs> but then I heard you say it in another interview too, which made me think that there was some part of it that was legit that you had this competitive um, uh, instinct or this desire to prove your worth. So how did you retain that during between age 20 and age 40, whatever, when people started to notice who you were? I mean, you mean, how did I maintain the... Yeah, uh, your the, sense of like, I'm not a failure, I don't suck. Um, you know, because it's really, you know, part of the driving force of it was the fact that there was nothing else I wanted to do. I mean, I really... I. I I, I've, I've told students now, uh, you know, when I'm dealing with kids who want to write or act or, you know, be, become involved in the entertainment industry, it's not a choice. Yeah. It really isn't. You, you're going to do it or you're not going to do it. I mean, if you choose not to do it, the good news is, is by starting in the direction you started, you're going to find something you really want to do. Um, and, uh, and this will serve you in really good stead. And... Uh, and you can't see it as a failure if you walk away because it really is – because part of it is it's, it's, it's something I think that is just inherent in the in, – in, no, but, you know, seriously, it, it, there's a level at which this is an illness, especially early on because you're pursuing – you know, really, we're going to – I'm going to go somewhere. I'm going to go into the woods and be check off. What the fuck? Who, what fucking idiot? That's like, you know, I'm going to go pick up, you know, a quarter ounce of heroin, you know. I mean, it's kind of that you're sneaking away to to enter a fantasy world and then to try to kind of see where you belong within that fantasy world. You want to create illusion and then you want to figure out how do you prop that illusion up over time so that people can all participate in that illusion. And you're saying the compulsion and obsession to to need that kind of like... um to, to need that, that kinship, first of all, with dead artists, and then to try to continue that, for you felt like, uh, at times, almost a curse that you had to do it? No, it never felt like a curse. Ah, but uh, you're it, saying it's crazy. I mean, you're saying... I, well, it is crazy. I've got someone... There is an objective fuck in my head who looks at this and goes, this is crazy. You know? I mean, there's someone who's, who's, you know gets that it's it's nuts. I mean, and part of that is the outside world. But to me, it was never... Um, once I just it, I, I kind of got hooked on it when I was young, uh, and it fascinated me, and it kept fascinating me. So it was always the thing. Some it, part of creating fascinated you. Yes. What? And I really didn't think I would end up writing. Pl- I mean, I really didn't know where. I really, even if I just, you know, because by the time I got to school, even if I taught it, I felt I wanted to teach it. I wanted to be able to talk to people about it. I thought it was important. Um, there was something, uh, and it kind of played into, I mean, in retrospect, not at the time, but now, uh, it's an oral tradition, and I got a big fucking mouth. <laughs> right. And, and so some part of being able to uh, hear these things and then connect with them, present them, talk about them, just turns you on in a way that other things... Yeah, I mean, it was like, you know, I, t- I took every course, I, I really did take everything at school to try to see if there was something else that would, you know, in that I, because I, I knew I thought, okay, this would be a good, 
worst, worst case scenario, this is a really great hobby. You know, my, my parents spent a lot of, my father watched a lot of plays in his life. So I can always get involved with it. You know, there's community theater, yada, yada. But let's find something that worked. And, but the thing that was is that, that I just, I, I, I was drawn to it, I think, because it was hard. And, um, and, in, in, and I think in a way, I, I keep thinking now, if, if in a way, if, if uh, it's a lot like there's a quality to it that's like a mathematical, it's a mathematical equation. Writing a script is like a math equation. And I always was really good at math, and my my dad is a was a is was a uh, mechanical engineer. And my mother was big in science, so there's, and this to me was, but I didn't have that fascination with that. But this to me was a, a, a different way. kind of code that you could yeah. try to get yeah. inside of and cr- crack and decipher and understand right. in that way. Exactly, and so always, and there was always it was. There was always something else the next day that kept drawing me back to it. Like people say now to me, you know, how long are you going to do stand-up until I stop learning? Yeah, when you, what did you think when, I mean, just Letterman was around your age, retired. Did it strike you as odd that he could, that he could walk away? No, I, uh, I could get it, you know, and it's like the way John just walked away. I get it. I mean, that's because that's, that's much more of a grind in a sense. Than the thing you're, than. Than, 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 than being a touring comic. When, yeah, I mean, for me, John hasn't walked away yet. August 6th. Uh, that's a little too much for me to take. I'm sure for you, it must be. Uh, have, have you made your last uh, appearance yet? No, I'm stuck. I'm, you know, they're going to find it. They're hard pressed to throw me off. I've still got a check good. coming. That's a good check. You good. Know, I've been, I'm the longest one on there. I'm staying on there until, until they, you know, they come and clear the place out. I'm going to be sitting there like Andy. I'm going to be in a puddle. I'll oh. just be lying there in a puddle of my own urine. Doing the <laughs> last back, to black and black, back and black. I mean, no, I, I don't know. As long as the, I'll be honest, as long as they maintain a lot of that writing staff, I'm happy to be there. Because I've always been kind of a country under my own self. So you'll still keep going when Trevor's on the show? The way it looks, I mean, unless they turn to me and say no, but from what everything I gather, I'm, I'm, I think I'm still on the show. I would, I would imagine, considering. Um, well, they asked me to tell you. <laughs> that would be. That's why Willie brought you here today. <laughs> that... We felt it was a safe. And you look, you're in a little enclosed box. There's not much you can do about it. That's perfect. But that would be perfect. Yeah, it's like Tommy and Goodfellas walking in to get made. Yeah. Don't look behind you. Yeah, no, but it's perfect. It's exactly it. Like when the, when my friend was was told he didn't get the, when they, uh, the, the pilot wasn't going to go, he was told by the limo driver. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I know that that's true. It is. William Converse Roberts. Look it up. He was told by the limo yeah, driver. Yeah, someone else. Because all... we always have, the, the great thing about this business, you always go, boy, I really got fucked. Boom, yeah. Well, they put two calves up my ass. Well, no, they brought in a shipping bag. They got this giant shipping magnet, and he brought in three tugboats, and they shoved those up my ass. <laughs> two of them came out my pee-pee. Oh, no, and then you just go on and on and on. And on. Yeah, but if anyone hasn't heard, I will just say uh, uh, Jim Brewer's story is the best I've ever heard. Oh, just so uh, go. Oh, good. I will Jim Brewer. Jim Brewer's story. Uh, I'll just very quickly because you'll yeah. just really like it. Jim, Jim Brewer. He he had a show NBC. I think they they were advertising the show. They had brought him to the up to the uh, like television critics thing in the hotel. With everybody downstairs, there were commercials on the air already. He flew his parents, who had always told him he'd be his mom, his parents, all his friends from home, 
And that they called him one floor down to tell him he was fired from the show. No. Everybody's partying in the hotel suite. No. That's the greatest. He tells it on Marin. It's a really wow. like, it's one of the great horrible stories you've ever yeah, heard. Yeah, no, and he's really, uh, he's also one of the guys who, uh, you, you know, some of the choices that people made, you know, he kind of really, now that it explains why, right, just went, okay, I'm, yes. going back, I'm going back to Long Island and I'm going to wander around and fuck you. Yeah. Well, no, he went and ended up, yeah, taking care of his dad. But yeah. I, I, no, I wrote about this because uh, I actually wrote a long thing about it. It's when I decided I was going to do a podcast because I always thought that guy was such a fucking joke and just Goat Boy's the worst character in the history of SNL. And I never, and then I heard this episode of this podcast and I thought, oh no. Of course. This guy's put in the 30 years. He's had every kind of failure. He's worked day in and day out. And you know what? You come out at the end of that, they put you on SNL for Goat Boy. You'll go, I'll do Goat Boy again. Yeah. How many times can I do Goat Boy? Hey, we're going to switch gears for a second here and talk about, you know, we're going to talk about stamps.com. And actually this week, this is going out to uh, a friend of mine in, in LA who knows who she is. Um, who told me that the Stamps.com uh, portion of the podcast each week is her favorite portion of the podcast. You know who you are, and this is for you. Stamps.com. Making trips to the post office is becoming a thing of the past. You just don't need to do it anymore thanks to Stamps.com. You already know that going to the post office is inconvenient, driving there, finding parking, waiting in line. But what you probably didn't know, you're paying more for postage there then you have to. Stamps.com is the better way. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, right from your computer and printer. Then just hand it to the mailman. With Stamps.com, you'll get special postage discounts you can't even get at the post office on first class, priority mail, international, more. Never go to the post office again. Never. I was trying to think about why this is my friend's favorite part. And I mean, I have to think that the reason is that she's somebody who appreciates value, convenience, expediency, and hates hassle. I mean, that's got to be it. It's got to be that uh, this is someone who's in business, and, and it must be such a drag every time she has to take herself to the post office and stop her day and, uh, and send packages for her small business endeavors. And I can just picture her now listening and saying, you know what? I'm so glad that last week I got up and I called because I can now start doing this from home. I never have to leave and I can do my work and spend time with my family and continue to encourage more and more people to do stamps.com ads. Uh, listen, you should get with the program here and stop, uh, stop being a lemming. Stop being a lemming and just, oh, I got a package. I should go to the post office. No, you shouldn't. You should do stamps.com. Right now, use my promo code MOMENT for this special offer. Get a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer. Includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in MOMENT. That's stamps.com. Enter MOMENT. So you, uh, you were... Um Trying to do this and had sort of told yourself you weren't going to stop. You said you were borrowing money. You made your parents make that deal with you. But yeah. when people always ask me, how do they know if it's a delusion or not that they can do it? Did you ever wonder about it? Even now you're saying, well, I figured I could go do something else or I could teach. 
I always wanted How to do you... I always I mean never felt delusion because I, I uh, uh, it wasn't until it was over that I, I you know and it really wasn't until my play was just produced right which was semi you considered yourself even with all the success you were still like a failed playwright and you would have said here lies Lewis Black failed playwright until the play uh, got put up until the play was ago. finally published 35 fucking years after the fact that was when I felt I might have been delusional <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> you know, that moment in time. I got, because I was told things. I was, to, I, I wrote these one acts. Uh-huh. And I thought they were good. And I thought that three or four of them at the time were, were, you know, I'd say good, you know, solid. Like what I knew of the history of the one act. I thought, yeah, you know, I mean, I think they're, they're short. They're interesting. They're over before you can hate them, one acts. They worked. They worked, I thought. And, uh. And I, I'm not, and so, and and so I was told these rules. Well, you know, if you get a New York production, if you get this, if you get that, if you get this, then uh, you can probably you can get it published. Well, I did all of those things, and I couldn't get it published. Right. It was Mammoth's company that told you that, right? Yeah. Basically, to, uh, the Atlantic Theater Company. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was it was Samuel French, Dramatist Play Service. It was the guys who published the plays. And they told you to go fuck yourself. They said, Nah, you know, no. And I would, you know, I, and... Uh, oh, so for you, it wasn't enough that they were put up. I mean, you you put them up, that they were put up. You actually <coughs> needed, you actually needed, like, the imprimatur of one of these services to say, okay, Lewis, you're the real deal before you... No, no, I needed them to get it out there so that other people Why? could do it. Because I was sending, you know, I really... But that's not true. You could have just put it up on the internet and anyone could have done it. What What, what, what internet? When was the play published? 19, well, no, this is years ago. This is before. They, no, 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 but I'm saying, no, no. I could have handed it to an Indian. Well, no, yeah, you could have set, set up, no, of course. Signals. You could have set up a table outside of Central Park with the, where they're selling the Beverly Hills Cop screenplay. But that's not what I'm, <laughs> no, I'm saying, but, you know, five, six years ago, you didn't, you said the validation for you was when it finally got. No, no, the, val, the, the but what I was saying was, is that, um. I didn't need Samuel French to publish it to validate it then. I just wanted uh, it to be out there so that people, you know, because it was, it was it, I felt like I had done what I was told you should do, just on the basic level of fairness, you know. Um, you know, what, what I learned as a Cub Scout, you do A, B, and C, and you get your Weeblos. Right. <laughs> So, so give me a so publish the fucking play. You were a scout. I was a Cub Scout. My mother here's a great one. My mother yeah. wouldn't. I said, you know, what about being a Boy Scout? She said, that's the last uniform you ever wear. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> well, where I grew up, they made it pretty clear that uh, they didn't have need for the Jews because <clears throat> they had the first meeting on Yom Kippur. No. And my mom, and we were not a re- religious household, but my mom went, you will never be any wow. kind of scout because they're doing that on purpose. Where were you, in Salzburg? <laughs> <laughs> yes, in fact, I was. No, <laughs> I was on Long Island. They were really making it a point. They, that's wow. why. they were. Well, they were overrun by us, obviously. Yeah. And they were like, you know what we're going to do this year? Yom Kippur this year. Yeah, but you were a scout. Yeah, just, yeah. Formative and, experience for you? No, it was just kind of like, you know, it allowed me to get together with guys when did you first get the sense that you, when did you first like connect with uh, writing creativity? When was the moment where it went like, oh, this makes sense in a way other stuff doesn't? Do you remember it? Do you remember when it went from like, oh, this is interesting to like, oh, this is, I'm mainlining this. I have to fucking mainline this stuff. Um, wow. I don't, 
the the teachers that I had at Chapel Hill were not terrific. Right. You know, they were they were, um, but they, they one of them was very supportive and really kind of helped me along and stuff. Part of it was. Um, Robert Anderson, who wrote, I never sang for my father. And, and the only reason I'm saying that is because it's, uh, it's, I'm one of six people who probably remember that. You know, I mean, there's not a lot of people who remember. He's, you know, it's, that's, yeah, I never get to share that kind of. So he, Robert Anderson, uh, came to Chapel Hill where I was going to school and read my play, and which was a, 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 And his work mattered to you ahead of time. His work mattered. Yeah, his work mattered. And the fact that he was doing it and, uh, and there was, a, you know, and, and he seemed, you know, and he was, there was like this professorial kind of, and I, and I didn't really have that from the guys. He uh, he said, I, he, I said, you, what do you think? He said, should I keep doing it? And he said, you got to, you know, you got a talent for it. And I would, I would continue to keep writing. And that was, that was the first push. That was the first push kind of externally. Yeah. What do you, do you, do you remember when it, like the idea dawned in your own head? for yourself like that this stuff turned you on more than other stuff that create like that either writing or performing hit you in a way that the other stuff didn't because you were a smart guy you could have done lots of things what what when did it first sort of like um you know b- become exciting in internally um like, start- wasn't in grade school no god boy no it wasn't through uh, you know the, where the hook came initially yeah. the initial hook uh was uh we did a talent show in my high school. You know, it was done on a yearly basis, and it filled the gym. There's like a thousand people, eight hundred people show up or whatever. And I, I hung out with a very funny group of guys. They were yeah. all really f- funny and smart. And they, they, you know, so we got the script on a Friday, and we're going to do it. It's supposed to be done the next weekend, and it's a, it's like all of them. You know, the, every script every year, an intolerable. You know, two ants in an attic. Oh, the memories, and now. You know, with you know some connections to introduce the fire dancers or whatever the, the you know, you know somebody's going to juggle fruit, whatever the fuck we was was rolling out next. So we, we, we took it over on a Friday afternoon and spent, you know, spent that we grabbed it, started writing it, and we re, 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 rewrote it and then wrote it again on Saturday. And by Monday we we were going to just this is what we're going to do. And it was uh, so we switched it to a talent agent that I played um, a uh, we've got parts from my friends who uh, one of them played like uh, the agent for the I was the one who was going to see if you could get on it was all about getting on the Ed Sullivan show and I was the last guy you saw and an agent brought in like we had a friend of mine played a Russian agent who brings in this they're going to do Ukrainian dancing or some shit whatever the fuck it's unbelievable in retrospect so <laughs> um, and uh you know, that's that was the last time I heard the word Crimea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, till last year. Till last year. So, um, so I played this guy, and that was the that was a hook in terms of of writing in part because I was writing. We really enjoyed writing it. We, I wrote, uh, I wrote a lot of, I wrote all of the. But what happened that it was the, the performance wise, which really came much later. But the, but the hook was, I mean, basically these kids would do the sh- do their stuff, and then I would basically tell them, in so many words, that it was awful, and they'd never yeah. get on Sullivan and forget it. And, and you love doing it. I love you doing it. writing it and performing and it. Performing it, and the crowd went nuts. I mean, they just howled through this thing, and um, and that was huge, you know. And I kind of I think that was the impetus. That was the turning point where I went. Uh, 
because it, up until that point, you know, I'm applying to colleges in the early part of the year. Now, uh, now I'm just at the point that I'm going to get rejected by a bunch of colleges. Uh, and, and I finally realized, oh, that's, this is it. This is what I want to do. Ah, so it dawned like that to you. Yes. I, have a, I now have a North Star. I have a North Star, yeah. And let's pursue that, but let's get a grip because we, because there's nothing around me. You know, it's not like it's a part of the, you know, and I'm not really, to that point, I'm not, my acting is horrific. Um, uh, I'm not a good actor. I'm not, I'm, I can read really well. I've read all, I've read everybody's, I've read probably more dramatic criticism than anyone my A lot age. of demand in show business for that, then and now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for the... I've read, I've read to... all, I've read tons of drama criticism. And, uh, it's funny, I, I'm never in a meeting where they don't say, tell me which Robert Anderson play is your favorite. <laughs> so, no, I mean, it's an important thing. But, so, no, but you, so you knew you had that. Yeah, and then he kind of gave me a push. And then, with, uh, and then the, I wrote a, a musical with a friend of mine um, called, uh, which was done at the uh, George Washington University and opened their theater. And he had written a really solid piece of um, uh, uh, a kind of a, I forget if it was As You Like It or something, uh, a musical version of it the year before. Then, then we were approached by his, uh, by the guy in charge of the drama department there. Uh, Carrie brought me in uh, and, uh, and we wrote this two hour and 15 minute musical. Uh, while you're at college. While we're at college, my senior year. And so I get that I get credit for that. You know, uh, part of the reason I ended up at Chapel Hill was the only it was the only school in the country where you could graduate with an from a theater department with an emphasis in playwriting. Nobody else. No one. And Chapel Hill didn't even know, didn't even look at their fucking course book to know they I'm the one who found it. You figured it out. I found it. So uh, so we did that. And that and then I and that's that was uh, it was um, it drove Carrie out of theater. That was the doing end. Doing it was the end of your friend. He was done. It was two hours and 15 minutes long, no intermission. Okay. And we, 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 you know, and we had made huge, you know, casting mistakes in the sense of, you know, we, part of it, you know, she's good looking. We're going to get her. And then she's singing the first song. We realized that her, her legs are just shaking <laughs> on stage. And it's like, oh boy, you know, you, you just, it's like they, it was like, you know, any you kind of go. initial play, it's the, the Hindenburg, you know, it gets up. Oh boy, it's flying out. Oh, the tragedy, the humanity. <laughs> Her legs are shaking, son of a bitch. But wait, can we? Just, yeah, I, I, I believe you're, that it, it was a, a dirigible. Because can we? Can we go back to uh, the two hour and fifteen minute no intermission part? Oh yeah, no, the, I was trying the to the get through that. You, what were you thinking? I wasn't. We weren't. I didn't. I because this is what I was thinking. If we let them right. go, they're gone. They're gone. We needed to get them to stay. You know, and because you open those doors, I, you know, then I, then I got six people left this way. Uh, and I knew, you know, and I kind of knew it was, a, it was traumatic. But much like when I was learning stand-up, there, I was learning from the trauma. So I was really more fascinated. You know, I was bleeding, but I was trying to figure out, well, how do you, you know, how do you make a suture? Did you know it sucked that night? As you were uh, watching, I'm not saying it sucked. I know I'm sure there were good parts of it. But did you know you missed that night, I knew that we, uh, I knew that I missed, but I also knew that it was kind of like pretty uh, extraordinary. We did it, so that that's so that's no, that's the, um, I mean, that's the thing that 
is interesting, right? Is how you told the story you told yourself yeah. the next day. Because obviously, there, I, I can imagine there were some annoyed college kids who had to sit there for two hours and 15 minutes were trying to be polite. Then you also had like the, the oh, nice hit of those actresses who appreciated being in the show. But yeah. the next day when you wake up, do you immediately, is your process, you immediately try to sort of do an autopsy to go, okay, how do I, what can I take? How conscious is the, um, I want to learn lessons from this? Or is it instinctive? I think, I'm not sure. I, at the time, I can't really remember. I think, I mean, Kerry was so panicked by it and I wasn't. I mean, he, he you know, he goes on to become, he's the head of, uh, he's the head of infectious diseases at the University of Michigan. I said, well, there's a choice, playwriting or, or, uh, or, or Ebola. Right. Great, great, great. Same choice, you fucking moron. Does he come see you when you perform in Michigan? Yeah. Yeah, we still talk. That's great. <laughs> yeah, no, we still Do you ever look in his eyes and, and, and you think he's happy with the choice he made? Oh, yeah, no, he is. He really, I mean, you know, he, he was very, uh, he was, he's very gifted. You know, he, he, he could have been, he could have done, he could have done, he could have been a, a composer and a, a lyricist. Uh, right. And uh, so he... Yeah, but you, you gave him Nicholas Nickleby, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Well, we both did. We really, uh, we, you know, it was really, it was two and a half hours that took place in the base, the basement of a suburban home. You know, and it was really, uh, it was insane. Uh, but it, it was, but it was an, uh, our honest portrayal of... Of what we thought about our our youth, uh, you know, growing up, but with, but with no, you know, I but mean, nobody, a, but even the, you know, I've got a the head of the department who's directing it isn't telling us to put it in intermission, so right. it's not like anybody, well, yeah, but you no just guidance. said they were, you just said they were bad at their jobs. Yeah, you but, started this by saying, well, no, no, but this they was, weren't but, good no, but, at their jobs. But this was the GW guy who I thought ah, was good okay. in my school. I, you know, they weren't. My school, the guy would fall asleep while people were reading a play and then wake up and criticize it. And he was always right. That's well, that's yeah, honestly, there's a gift to that. Yeah. He'd seen it before. Yeah. It wasn't right. I mean, it wasn't the. So, uh, was your process then, or is it now? Uh, do you journal? Like, what do you do to collect your thoughts and notes? Like, after something like that, or in, in rewriting, do you every day write something? down do you have a, a, a routine or is it as it comes to you no i you mean in terms of now but either uh, well, like then, the whole then uh, then it was little notes on the side of the page and stuff and uh, but it was also a sense of uh, wow this is not gonna this is not gonna rise this is the the, the the phoenix is not rising from these ashes so it was kind of a dead issue you know <laughs> carrie was out carrie, right. <laughs> carrie was aloha but also uh the interesting thing, one of the great parts of the story, we got a, uh, Richard Coe was the drama critic for the Washington Post, came to see it and, and uh, brutalized us, brutalized us. It was a brutal review. But the extraordinary thing was my father called him on the phone and said, you don't do that. You don't do that to people who are trying to just start out. You don't do that to a college student. I was a senior in college. What, the, what, do you, what, what standards are you applying here? It was pretty extraordinary. He got the guy on the phone. Got him on the phone and told him. And my father, you know, said, you know, I'm not, you know, I like your criticism and all of that. And he, he my father, my father saw everything and, uh, and said, you know, but you don't do that to kids. Well, You're what being a, a bully. What a, an empowering thing for you. Yeah. To know that, like, not only, I mean, a, a lot of parents would look at their kid after that and say, see, go be a doctor like Carrie. Yeah. No, my and dad your was... parents, your father looked at you and was like, uh, yeah. this guy's a jerk. Don't listen to yeah. him. In fact, I'm going to go tell him he's a jerk. Yeah. 
Did you keep track of Mr. Coe's career after that? He kept going. He kept writing for years. Did he ever review you again? No. Nah, no, nah, that was the last, the, our last moment together. Well, yeah. You know, but it was really, uh, but the, what was most important was my dad. You know, that was something that was pretty extraordinary. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, a beautiful thing. You yeah. Can, you can, uh, so what did he end up seeing of your whole journey in your career? My father? Yeah. He saw everything. Uh, that's great. He's, I mean, he's still alive, and uh, they come when I do stand up, and when they, when the play was done uh, initially at Williamstown, the, when this play called uh, "One Slight Hitch" was done, had it finally had a you know we rewrote it and I re I spent twelve years workshopping it and getting it uh, into shape with Joe Grafazzi, a really uh, good dire- director actor and uh, and really good with structure, and we. They they showed up there and they showed up when we did it in uh, New Jersey, uh, and uh, so they've seen everything. And I, I ran this room at the the West Bank Cafe yes. here in New yeah. York, where we did a ton of of new plays. They would go to see plays that friends of mine would come into Washington that they knew from my drama school days, and they'd go to see those plays. And you were good at it. You were good at picking plays, right? Uh, you yeah. found some. We found really good stuff. But partly, what we were really good at was. It, if we trusted the talent of someone, yeah, we trusted their talent. Said, okay, if you want our help, we're here. Otherwise, go do it. And what we found was that model works. You know, every and, and when it didn't work, it was spectacularly bad and well worth it. <laughs> sure, <laughs> you know, because you go, wow, what were you thinking? Um, but you knew that the person that you that blew up, you know, that this thing blew up in front of was somebody that you felt. And it, and we were the, so crazy. It was like if Willie, who worked there, if yeah. Willie knew somebody uh, like Carl Carpet, Carl Carpet, Carpet, Capitordo, Carpitordo, Carl Carpet, Capitordo, who was a really fine writer. Carl. Carl. Yeah, but but Willie introduced me and said Carl really writes well. You know, you're going to like this, and then you know, and then so a lot of it we would, and then we'd read scripts that were just kind of handed in. The the uh, the the saddest thing I ever did as an artistic director, and this I'm only sharing this with you because I I don't think I've ever told this story publicly, and yeah. it should be. It Let's should get make, it on the record. Make, well, it's it's really the kind of thing that it, you, I can't believe you did this. Um, I'm sitting in as we get a play from the Columbia Columbia University, the uh, the playwriting program there. The, um, I read hundreds of plays, and uh, during the course of the year, I, I begin to realize if if it's not there in the first four, it's not happening. It's you forget it, you throw it away. Yeah. But it took a long time to learn that because I'm I write, I get it, uh, and maybe there's there's something you're going to see later. Yeah, you want to give the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And I stopped giving things the benefit of the doubt, but then one day I pick up an ant. This is like we're, we've done this seven years, and uh, the first uh, page of the play is these the two um, the two women in bed, two lesbians, and uh, and they have a scene together. They have a sex scene. They uh, they they make love, and that's the opening of the play, and it's it, it, uh, described there on this first page. And I handed it to my two. Uh, you know, Rusty and Randy, who I worked with, the two other, uh, the, the artistic director and the composer in residence, and I said, um, we're doing this play. <laughs> I said, you, you tell me, you give me one re- good reason. I don't want you to read the play. We're going to do this play. <laughs> we're just doing the we're play. We're doing the play because we have done thousands of plays. We did more of New American One Act than anybody else. This is for us. We'll see what happens afterwards. But... 
I think we deserve that once we can sit in the back for three <laughs> nights and we, this is the way the play will open. And even if it sucks, it's going to be great for us. But it was a good play. It turned out to be a very good play. But it was really, but it was totally did done. You tell the, the, did you ever tell the writer? No. No. <laughs> you told the writer it was a genius, right? Oh, yeah. This is a wonderful piece. Of, well, but it was good because it really was a wonderful and piece. And then did you uh, discipline yourself? To, did you go to the rehearsals or not? No. So you didn't see it until you walked in? No, until I walked in. But we'd been and through a, other things where we'd picked up stuff and you just went, holy God, when it would finally hit the stage. So we'd already been through enough. So, But this was, well, the first page. Look at that. They're going to be kissing in our basement. <laughs> That's, well, kids, you want to know how to break in. Yeah, it was, That's, it was really something. I don't know if that person's still writing. It was really, though, something. What, do you remember the writer's name? No. No, I don't. God, we did hundreds of scripts. Hundreds. Uh, well, that person's name is <laughs> Jill Soloway. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... Uh, were you performing at this time? Like when you were doing the, the having the, putting up the one acts, running the theater, still trying to break in really as a I was playwright. performing there. Doing stand-up? Yeah, I was, I was the, when you break into stand-up, the, the thing is, is that what you do is, is there's an opening, a middle, and, yeah. and there's a host. Yeah. And I had never, I had gone, uh, I literally never did any of the steps. I literally started, when I started working as a comic, I was doing uh, 25 minutes, 30 minutes at a time. I right was, away. Right away. I, was, I didn't know you weren't supposed to, and I wasn't going to clubs. I was just doing it. And uh, uh, and not, and I would do it and quit. I was doing it just as a hobby. So when we started the West Bank, I was now in the position of hosting, and I opened for every every play we did, and got really comfortable on stage. Really, really comfortable. And you were just could talk about what you wanted to talk about. Right. And nobody expected it to be funny. And so uh, I learned how to, I learned my, where, what I learned, which was something I had not had before, was uh, how to be comfortable on stage. And so as you started to get, it must have been odd as you started to get such like approbation for that thing, you were fighting to get this other thing to become successful. And then suddenly you could tell, I imagine you could tell there was a spark to this when you would talk. Yeah, something was happening because, you know, we were get, I was getting cast in movies. Right. And so what did it feel like? What, what did it feel like when that started to be the thing and you were wanted, I clearly want to be like, yeah, but read this stuff. Uh, what did that feel like for you? That Was it dissonant for you? No, it was, um, I felt, uh, the, I felt like we were, it was, I liked doing that so much. I loved doing what we did there. It was like I, I was very happy in that job. It was like the greatest job ever, and it really was. Right. I Put, got to putting on the with, shows and being able to perform the whole yeah, deal. You the whole deal, it. and what we were making in its heyday when we made, you know, we actually, was, I was making probably what an off Broadway actor would make. Right. You know, and uh, so I was. I thought, you know, I can keep doing this. Right. I'm and you very were able happy. to tell, you, and to you, that was uh, that was success. Like you didn't. Yeah. In, in your mind, you weren't looking for for more than that. You weren't trying to have like everything in a way, um, consciously. You weren't consciously saying to yourself, "I need um, a nicer apartment. I need a fucking car. I need a golf course membership." No, you just wanted to be able to live as an artist, basically. Yeah. I had I had it all. And did you work other jobs? Like, were, from what point were you living as an artist? 
where you weren't really doing other gigs to allow yourself to, to do this? Um, I, I worked as an artist. Uh, I got out of Chapel Hill. I worked, I, uh, I, I worked one year for uh, the government, for the Appalachian Regional Commission, and uh, then went and ran a uh, theater with friends in Colorado. For we lasted there a year. We worked, but we did all theater oriented stuff. So we worked. We had we were an adjunct to this high school where we got hired, where we did plays or, and did stuff where we. I wrote. So it was still connect, stuff, yeah, completely, completely connected, connected to what you wanted to be yeah, and yeah. do. And did like, uh, we did you know um, you know dramatic you know did kind of improv and stuff with uh, at a, a maximum security prison and we did uh, and all sorts of things like that. And then I went back to work. I worked as and then I went on to be. From there, I went to be a playwright in residence at a theater in uh, Washington uh, for a year, and then uh, and then I got into Yale. And when I and then at Yale, I just hung out, and uh, you could live for nothing in New Haven. Right. And uh, and so I would work um, as a uh, I, my friends were all in. I, I kind of stayed. I stayed in. I, I stayed in New Haven. I, I basically explained. I stayed there to figure out why I w- went there in the first place. I yeah. needed th- two more years to figure that out. But I hung out with all these actors who couldn't get their work study. So I would go in and get their work study. So I would work like 20 hours a week. Right. You know, which was nothing. And I would be doing tech work. So I was still in theater. So it was, I never really. In a weird way, you know, you're the, refu- I mean, you are the refutation to sort of like people who, who say, well, I, I want to do this, but I, I need, you know, how am I going to support myself? How am I going to live? But. In a weird way, and not—I don't want to like overstate the metaphor—but the the work was what gave you this sustenance. It, the work was kind of enough sustenance for you because you were really—it's really what you needed. Yeah, it was all. It was. I, mean, I was happy. Yeah, and and but so many people now want—they sort of when they—I'm sure you must get this when they ask me these they ask me questions all the time, and you know you, you try to say to them well what you got to do is set up a way where you're you know do this work like get up every day get up do the work that, that really matters to you. And and then they'll go yeah but you know I well what if what if I want to have kids or a relationship or and I go well then okay but I can't answer that all I can answer is if you want to try to become a person who lives a creative life you have to just be determined to just go right in that direction no matter what yeah. and they always say it's unrealistic but I mean you did it without any sort of outside you know with with really no idea that this all could happen. Yeah, not, not, not at all. <laughs> not, a, not a clue. Uh, and if you have a kid, sell the kid. If you're, you know, if you're running into problems, that's the, yes. Uh, I always no, no. I always advise no, that please, you have to you, sell the kid. Sell the kid. Obviously, sell the kid. But I did, you know, to be to be honest, I did end up. Uh, I wouldn't. I, that was the problem I couldn't solve. I could not solve the problem of a relationship uh, that really worked with that. You know, where I could right. get married and have children. I just yeah, you didn't have those things. I couldn't do it. That was the thing. I didn't mind doing that on my own. I could live like that. I'm not going to ask somebody else, and I'm not going to put my. I was not going to yes. put myself in a situation where I had to have somebody who's. Gonna, that's totally fair. I agree. I and I agree with it. And you know, uh, that's why it, it's really people in their twenties that I, who ask me the question, and I, I write to them often. Do you are you married? Do you have a thing? If you don't, then you have zero excuses. Yeah. If you don't, then you have no excuse not to just go after this with everything that you have. And I've said, you know, I've said, I've said the same thing. I mean, in a sense that, that uh, you know, on a larger level, you know, um, 
you know, the, everybody's, you know, they, they, they were belly aching from, uh, you know, when the, when the economy hit the shitter. Yeah. 2008 or something. I was, I said, you know, for, for adult, for adults, for people over the age of 30, it's, it's traumatic. Yeah. Uh, you're under the age of, this is a boom town time for you, you fucking moron, because now you can go to 60% of the country and get, and if you just, and if you get over here, I have to have my own studio apartment. Where the fuck did that come from? Where was that written? But, but seriously, because I was living, I moved into New York with six people. Right. We lived in a, in a small apartment. We lived in a three, and it was large enough for us to live there. And, uh, and you could go, you could go to Detroit and get a space, and you could go to places and do you whatever it was you wanted to do. It's you, you were given the opportunity. All of a sudden, you didn't have to come up with the money for that, for the for the living part, and that's right. huge. And I, I was lucky because I was in the, in a sense, I was lucky. I had friends who also knew that, and. And, you know, and there was still, you know, rentals in New York that, boy, you could bring it down. Right, I stayed, were... I mean, I stayed on in, in New Haven because of that. You right, know, because was... you were not going to sort of put yourself in a position where you had to make a certain amount of money because you were going to just become a writer and an artist. I needed 250 bucks a month. Okay, that was it. That's all I needed to get by in New Haven. That's not tough. And there, there was never a, a point as this was all happening where it got to be a drag for you the the lack of financial reward because how old were you when you got the daily show uh 50 right and that drew, uh, yeah, yeah. i mean you were uh, famous probably, no, before I was that 47 46 and you were famous before that you it were known before on, that yeah. it was all starting to happen but it really didn't happen to you until your 40s right oh yeah and so was it you know people often say uh all the time say well if it hasn't happened by 30 like I didn't I didn't write my first screenplay till I was 30 and uh, and at the time I remember people looking at me like I was a truly a fucking lunatic like I had a career what are you doing like what the fuck are you doing they didn't understand it at all Mm -hmm. they said I was too old but when you were you're 40 and you're still working the joints uh, you know uh, and it was but it felt fine to you well, because I made the transition out of playwriting. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden, you know, if I was getting gigs, it, uh, I didn't care where the gig was. was. You know, I'd be out in Jersey or whatever. It was like, well, you're going to pay me more than I ever used to get doing this. And then when I, you know, was going out on a weekly basis to places, people always said, wow, you know, uh, you should have been around for the heyday. Um and, uh, oh, the '80s heyday. Yeah, the heyday. You know where you know, and I and I, and it was, and I was making fifteen hundred bucks a week, and I was then, and I'm going, what planet are you fuckers? Right, on? this is the fucking heyday. This is a huge heyday. I mean, that was, and that was big then. This was, we're talking twenty twenty five years ago. So well, who's kidding who? Even now, fifteen hundred bucks a week. Is you know uh, is not a bad a bit of change if you're you know if you get to do what it is you fucking want to do. So for you, obviously, like having r- real success and real wealth and a huge following and all that stuff has uh, allowed a lot of the external stuff to change. What what has it changed for you internally? I'm empty. Good, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> I'm perfect. I'm a heartless. Uh, I've got nothing. I, no, that's uh, obvious just looking at I you. Know, I know. That's no. why I didn't want to come in. No. 
I, I, said, I said to Willie, can we do this on the phone? I don't yeah. want him to see how empty yeah, I no, am. No, of course. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's the kind of look you normally see. I think I now know what Ted Bundy looked like. <laughs> when when she was in the cross from those people, and he finally told them everything. I know. But uh, no, how is it cha- has it has it has the validation, the true huge validation changed anything or did it did it not did it not for you? No, it changed. It made me more uh it certainly made me more comfortable on stage. I mean really uh you know to um and and there's you know people say why do you keep going out? You know people are always like how come you know you're crazy 120 dates a year what's the matter with you? But it's it's not like Willie Nelson. I mean, I, I, I don't know how you go out night after night after night. I, but I do go out like three nights a week, and it's uh, four nights a week, and then come back home. And, uh, and what I found is, is that, um, I mean, you show up in a town, and no matter what's going on, you show up that night, and you could be whatever. And I go on stage, and there's you know, anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 people want to see you. You can't beat it. No, how could you? Of course, you, know, you just can't. And uh, so, for me, it's the the. And for me, what they've allowed is kind of a, a something that I've a really uh, didn't realize in the beginning. That's what I was doing. But I mean, what that what what they're watching me do and allow me to do is right on stage. So that's what I'm doing. You're creating. Yeah. Right, which is, I guess, the completion of that uh, Amy Grant, Vince Gill thing is you ended up writing that thing on stage overnight and nights and nights, retelling the story that had just of this thing. That and I would do it. And then I, I would I would start with, you know, I started with Vince and I went through Vince's things. And then I initially my initial was to talk to my friend Kathleen Madigan, who was there. And so I told her I'd start telling her the story and, and you know, talk to her. And then I would come back and I talked to my friends. I'll go. You won't believe what happened. Like, I just come back. I'm just, I just, I just have to say this because I love saying it. I just came back from Cannes, uh, the, the, the film festival. Yeah. And uh, I do think that there'll be, I don't know how long it'll last or if it will, but I think there's, there's, there seems to me to be five, five to seven minutes there already. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, so that I already know, you know, that I already have certain things. And you've already started telling your friends? Yes. Have you started talking about it on stage yet? No, I won't. I, well, I'll talk about it Thursday in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So you're going to Tulsa, and then you're going out in July. In July. What are some of the things? This will be up in two weeks. So what are some of the things that are coming after that? The, the only thing, is, the big thing that's coming is, uh, you know, is this Inside Out, This the, the reason I went to Cannes. This, uh, uh, and you, by the time you hear this, you'll be sick of it because it'll be in your face to the point where you go. Uh, it's like a PR. It's right. like. But when's it, it coming out? It's, it comes out June, uh, the, opens June 19th. So, Great. Oh, this will be up before that. This yeah. will be up the week before that. So yeah. June 19th. Yeah, that's when. And then at the end of July, I'm in Portland, Maine in Hyannis. Uh, and then there's a, a couple more dates there. Well, and then I'm off. Well, people yeah. can find out all this stuff at lewisblack.com. And you're on Twitter? Uh, I'm on that fucking yeah. At Lewis Black, right? Uh, uh, yeah, at the Lewis Black. At the Lewis Black. Um, all right. Look, the this is all a logical conclusion, bringing it back to that to this. But... You know, in uh, in reading your book on religion, um, I just I have to ask you. And so uh, you can you can stop basically listening. This is, I'm just going to ask for a lecture right now that's disconnected <laughs> from the interview, but I have to get it. Which is, you know, you tell that story about going to um, 
uh, a temple and there are these uh, old Jews and you were annoyed that people weren't respecting them and their beliefs, even though you, like uh, me, are an atheist uh, and, in fact, don't even... It was, pa- it was a Passover service. Passover service, right. Yeah. But, and, and you said in there this thing, which is that um, even if you don't have beliefs, you have to respect other people's beliefs. Yeah. But I don't know, is it, that received wisdom. I'm wondering, you know, you wrote that book seven years ago. I'm wondering why. I've always thought the same thing. Hitchens wrote that he would go to a church and do that. But I would ask you, why? Why, why respect him? Yeah, why? What, why, if knowing what you know and what you think and the sort of the rest of your book and uh, tons of stuff you've said talk about the, your, view, your view of the effect of religion on our society. Yeah. So from your point of view, why fucking respect other people's beliefs? Because if if it's within the context of if it's if if if, it, if they if they are not in the you know if they're not going over the border you know if they're not like launching into a different place that they they don't pull you mean with weapons yeah, with weapons and stuff and or with or with uh, you know or with prejudice or with all of the things the barbarities that people can bring to it you know I don't care if look somebody wants to go to a church. And I mean, look, they're down there, you know, they're playing with snakes for fuck's sake. Who am I to say, you know, as long as they keep the snakes in the church, I'm fine with them. The Pentecostals, he's yeah, talking about, you know, the, they're uh, down there playing like it's, they're all in the movie The Apostle. Well, you know, that guy, there are, though, you know that those people are out there. It's not a they it, as long as, they, you know, metaphorically, if they keep the snakes there, fine. I mean, the great thing about being in this country is you have the freedom to be in your head, you fucking moron. Just zip it. You don't fucking you don't get to to fucking just say it out loud, even though we have freedom of speech. You have the fucking common sense to keep your mouth shut when you should keep it the fuck shut and have courtesy to other human beings. But basically, I mean, and partly I feel that feeling, you know, it's because uh, I'm not I don't think that any organized group really I think it kind of makes it less than what's really happening. That those words, I don't give me a lot of comfort because it's so much bigger than what's really going on, and uh, and whatever that is, I'm, I have, I and I've known in my life, uh, I can't. You know what? I really can't disparage is someone's faith. If they got it, I tell you, it's it's really a workable commodity. I did. I had faith for a year in my life. I had f- true faith where I just felt everything's going to work. Don't worry about it. It's going to work. And you connected that to a God kind of a faith. Well, I mean, it, it, I, it, I considered it faith. I, you know, I considered it trusting that, uh, trusting that everything would be all right. And it so, was. It was insane. And it had to do with writing. Yeah. I was, it was when uh, I wrote a, my first successful play that I it would be working all day. And I go, boy, and I was working with a group of actors. And, uh, and we were writing it kind of together. But I would basically kind of cull everything. We'd do improvs. I'd come back, try it this way, try it that way. But every day I knew that I would get an answer. That somebody, and every day something would, somebody would come up with the answer. Would walk in. It may not be directly. It was crazy, and it lasted a year. So you miss, you miss feeling that way. Oh yeah, I've spent my whole life trying to get back to you it. You might be the slowest cycling bipolar person. <laughs> <laughs> It's coming back next year. Yeah, really. It is finally going to cycle back. It's got to cycle back. It has to. All right, Lewis Black, thank you for doing this. You can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. 
Um, and uh, if you like the show, please rate and review it on iTunes. If you don't like the show, write Lewis about it. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> See you next time. Thanks a lot.